0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: On this episode of Good Faith Weekly, we are going to catch up with Autumn and her family, as well as take a deeper dive into EthicsDaily.com's weekly series about mental health during the pandemic. And then in our final segment, we're going to be interviewing Reverend Fran Pratt from North Little Rock. She serves as worship pastor at... Piece of Christ Church there in North Austin, and she's also the author of a wonderful book about liturgy, Call and Response, Litanies for Congregational Prayer, so you'll want to make certain to stay tuned for that interview. Autumn, how are you this week?
0: We are doing well. All of our children have wrapped up their school, and so we've said goodbye to friends, and the summer has officially begun, even though it kind of feels like it started May, uh, March 13th.
1: <laughs> it does. It's starting to kind of feel like summer. I mean, here uh, in, in Oklahoma, where you and I live, uh, storm season is, is upon us, and so warmer temperatures, more humid air. Uh, sunshine is beaming down, but uh, so it's starting to, to feel a little bit different and certainly makes you want to go outside. I know that.
0: It, it definitely does. It does. How are things on your end?
1: Uh, we think we're doing okay. Uh, just uh, trying to wrap up the school year. My uh, oldest son uh, just graduated from Emerson College in Boston. Um, He was unable to have a commencement uh, like thousands of others across the country, but uh, Emerson did a really nice thing um, uh, last week. Emerson is located there in downtown Boston for any listener who's been there. It's right across the street from the Commons area on uh, uh, Boylston and Tremont, and so about uh, nightfall, as uh, night was falling there in downtown Boston, uh, they did a light show on one of the dorms. Happened to be the dorm where my son stayed his freshman year, and they scrolled all of the names of the graduates up and down the uh, the, the the building there. And it was just a really nice, really nice tip of the hat to the graduates. Uh, I know many schools are. Trying to do everything they can to honor our graduates, knowing that it's a very difficult time for high school and college graduates across the country. So uh, it was nice. So he graduated. My youngest son is uh, still working uh, on his last uh, semester at his current college. So every now and again, our listeners may hear him throw a book against the wall as he's in <laughs> French four or five. I can't remember what class he's in right now, uh, but yeah, he's finishing up as well, but uh, we're doing well getting by. So you guys got big summer plans? Uh Anything? How, how are you going to do summer during a pandemic?
0: Well, we're going to just stay home. I think I, I'm really, you know, thankful that we have our kids spread out the way that we do because we're able to sort of get them all on their own paths doing things but it's I mean, kind of funny, they come together, and mm-hmm. usually right around it's time to go to bed. They're suddenly all four playing so nicely together. Mm-hmm. So hopefully some more of that and just being outside. We got the sprinkler out in the front yard, um, I guess, two nights ago, and that really, to me, felt like summer. You know, yeah, just right. the smell of that water on the sidewalk, and um, I think it's going to be a slow summer, which is kind of nice. Yeah.
1: Well, we've been throwing a little bit more, or a little extra chlorine in the pool, hoping that it uh, kills any, <laughs> any uh, COVID that's out there in the backyard. Yeah. So uh, we were very fortunate to, to have uh, a swimming pool, and so we've been kind of hanging out by the pool. Actually got in the other day on a really warm day, so uh, that was nice. My wife and uh, oldest son, as I said, uh, he's just graduated from college, but one of the things he had to do, he was actually studying abroad at Emerson's campus in Los Angeles, California this last semester. So when they shut the campus down, uh, we had to bring him home immediately uh, from campus. Uh, his plan was to, to stay in California after his graduation. But because everything was so uncertain, we flew him home. He had a car out there, uh, turned in kind of a logistical nightmare for us. But anyway, any rate, long story short, my wife and son flew out to LA this past week. Uh, and they were pretty you know, anxious about it. Uh, my wife, uh, you know, kind of gave me a report uh, with each airport that she went through. Uh, she told me that the airlines were operating at about 85%, which uh, was a little startling for us. We felt like uh, the planes would have a little less uh, load than that, but uh, they're operating at about 85%. She was pleased to report that uh, a vast majority of people were wearing masks on the plane. Uh, there was only one or two individuals who did not wear mask, and the flight attendants told her that they could not mandate them to wear a mask, which we thought was something they could mandate, but yeah. uh, they told her that they couldn't make them wear a mask on a plane. So at any rate, uh, but she was pleased that a majority of people were taking it uh, seriously. Uh, she flew through Dallas-Fort Worth on her way out to L.A., uh, said that uh, DFW, which is one of the busiest airports in the world, was uh, about half full or 60% full, uh, mm-hmm. and everybody was at least you know making an effort to keep their distance, So, but uh, they made it out there safe and then started the long drive back from Los Angeles to Norman, Oklahoma, and uh, uh, stayed at a hotel along the way in Flagstaff, and finally made it back, and now they have uh, decided to quarantine themselves in one of our rooms here. So I get to play butler for a couple of weeks here, uh, making dinner, doing laundry, uh, leaving uh, room service by the door so that they can get it. Uh, But uh, yeah.
0: really well played by her, I think. Um, sort of a reverse Oregon trail where you just land in opulence <laughs> with a swimming pool in your backyard, um, room service.
1: Yeah, I mean, the she's just... Li- should
0: be so lucky.
1: She's living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, all of this uh, travel angst and uh, looking f- towards a, uh, a stranger than normal summer uh, by uh, any means has left a lot of people, you know, feeling a little bit depressed, uh, and some people a lot depressed. Uh, Mental health is a big issue uh, during this pandemic, and I think is going to continue to be as uh, trauma from uh, people who have had COVID, people who have lost jobs, uh, the world changing all around them is going to continue to be an issue. And so you and I are going to take a little deeper dive in our next segment segments. So uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and in this week's Deeper Dive, we're going to talk a lot about mental health. It has certainly been an issue over the last three months as individuals and families have found themselves quarantined, some people who have been, uh, who have been infected by the virus, others uh, who have died from the virus, as families mourning their loved ones uh, from a distance, Um, people losing their jobs, all kinds of travesties taking place over the last three months, and uh, still the future is unknown. This week at EthicsDaily.com, we have actually been running a series of columns that you'll want to check out regarding mental health. So, you know, Autumn, uh, lots going on at our website, but uh, I know you got your ear to the ground. What are you hearing uh, from your friends about their mental health and how are things going
0: yeah, you know, I feel like the pandemic has come at a time when mental health is sort of a hot topic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good. Um, there is, I'm in our, later in our interview, you'll hear uh, Reverend Pratt refer to herself as an elder millennial, mm-hmm. which is what I am. I'm an elder millennial. I'm 82, so I'm just right there at the cusp. Um, you look great for
1: 82. Something. What is it? I said, you're 82?
0: That's right. Uh, that's right. Exactly. <laughs>
1: What you meant to say is you were born in 82. Yes, I
0: was born in 1982, which is like just right there at the coast. <laughs> I was born
1: before 1982. You were?
0: Yeah, just, just a few cool. years. Well, that's okay. We we represent a cross-section of the nation between the two of us. All right. So, keep a, keep yeah. the positive spin going. That's all I do. we it positive. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why you hired me. That's
1: exactly right. Yeah.
0: Um, But I think the millennials have really uh, brought the discussion about mental health to the forefront. And thank Mm -hmm. goodness. Oh, absolutely. It's so necessary right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was reading an article. In fact, you and I were talking about it uh, before uh, we recorded this segment by Kristen Arnold. Talked about seven issues your family must navigate during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Fear, guilt, grief, technology, communication, All of these uh, play a part in, um, you know, taking a a really significant uh, amount of our time, our energy, and it is costing us, and our mental health is suffering because of it. And she does a nice job laying those things out, Um, and people need to check out that article at ethicsdaily.com. But, uh, you know, families are suffering and they're trying to get help. And, you know, we had another article by Monty Self, who's a senior staff member over at Baptist Hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas, talk about, um, you know, fortunately, there are a lot of people who are able to have access to mental health. Uh, Even during the pandemic, telehealth uh, is a big issue right now. But even though the ACA was passed uh, years ago, there are still people who do not have access to mental health.
0: Yeah. And there, you know, even when you're ready to overcome the stigmas that exist all around them, Mm -hmm. you're right. There are so many barriers and insurance companies state by state um, are, you know, allowing virtual visits, not allowing virtual visits. And, you know, this is one of those times when universal health care sure would be nice that we could all have the same access and not just mental health, but also, you know, physical health.
1: Yeah, and you talked a moment ago, and I think you're so right. You mentioned that uh, the the millennial generation has really put mental health on the forefront of everybody's minds and the importance of it. Uh, Rebecca Gordon from North Carolina writes uh, a beautiful article this week talking about uh, the importance of mental health for emerging adults. And mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned my son a moment ago, and in fact, my article uh, on Thursday. Uh, at Ethics Daily uh, talks about him and his generation graduating into this world that is not only unknown, but unprecedented, Um, an economy that is teetering, a job market that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago that we were suffering through the Great Recession. And now here we are teetering once again on economic collapse um, and this, the mental health that, uh, the, the, the mental health toll that it takes upon an emerging generation, um, that, uh, really my heart goes out to them and, and what they can do. And, uh, you know, even, you know, your family, uh, which we've talked about before has, has suffered greatly during this pandemic. Uh, your husband lost his job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. And. You know, it's, it's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of anxiety that comes with um, different pressures coming from, you know, just navigating being a parent and the financial burden. And then just the, the physical um, toll of trying to keep your children safe Um, and trying to tell them in a developmentally appropriate way, how they can be safe. And, you know, trying to talk our children into, you know, if they're going to be out and going to be near people how do you how do you teach a four-year-old to wear a mask well like, you've done a normal yeah.
1: you've done a great job of educating your children and in fact at ethicsdaily.com your article is out and you wow. do a beautiful job of describing from a child's perspective how they are in during this pandemic um, and it's it was just it was very well it was very creative but very well done and uh, you and, and, and Josh have done a great job uh, educating your kids and giving them the tools to uh, to deal with this.
0: Well, we're all hot messes together, basically. <laughs> what happens at our house? Well, one thing that you mentioned in your article that I thought was really important is you know we've talked we've said the word millennial a few times, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but just there's been a lot of generational division. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy during a time of crisis for one generation to point fingers at another. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, the your son is Gen Z, is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah. He uh, just is after he does. He's almost a millennial, but not quite.
0: Okay, so you know these Gen Zers, as you mentioned, are graduating. They're you know coming into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, at a time when no one else, no other generation, um, can really help inform their next steps because no one has ever experienced anything like this. No one on the earth today right. um, has experienced quite the cataclysmic, um, you know, situation that they're experiencing. That's exactly right, and
1: they've experienced these these uh, horrific moments all of their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my son was born in 1997. My youngest son, son was born in 2000. So both of them, uh, you know, grew up in a world that they really didn't know anything else post 9 11. Mm-hmm. And then you think about everything that's happened since then. We've had two yeah. elongated wars. Uh, we've had. Uh, climate change, the catastrophes from climate change. Uh, we've had domestic terrorism. We've had mass shootings, both in churches and in schools. Uh, we've I mean, had numerous things, the Great Recession, for crying out loud. And now this pandemic, this generation of 18 to 25-year-old young people have gone through so much, I contend that this generation will point the way for us to come out of this a stronger people. Yeah.
0: And I
1: look for them for hope, for inju- or for creativity, uh, for energy, um, and, and for a, a path forward because yeah. they have lived this all of their lives and their resilience and resolve is outstanding. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the future, we're going to speak to Fran Pratt, Reverend Fran Pratt, I should say, who is the worship pastor at Peace of Christ Church in North Austin. And she's going to talk about the importance of liturgy uh, during pandemic, but also the importance of liturgy from a day-to-day life as well from uh, a Sunday morning worship perspective. So you want to stay around for that interview. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and in this episode, we have a very special guest with us all the way from North Austin, Reverend Fran Pratt, who is the worship and liturgical pastor at Peace of Christ Church there in North Austin, and she's also the recent author of a wonderful book called Call and Response, Litanies for Congregational Prayer. Fran, welcome to the pod.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Well, it's great to have you here this week, and we're excited to get a chance to visit with you, especially about the book and uh, uh, and liturgical service. Uh, it kind of goes against the grain uh, of what a lot of people think about when they think about emerging generations and worship, but we're really excited about uh, this conversation today.
0: So my first question was just as I you know looked through your website and kind of through some of your your litanies, and you came very highly recommended to us um, by Zach, who's in your church, Zach Dawes. And he said, You have to talk to Fran because she's so thoughtful. And after we read through some of your work, we agreed um, your pieces are, are artful and poetic. So tell us a little bit about Fran as you were growing up. Were you artistic? Did you have a favorite author or poet who inspired you to this, this career?
2: I was an artistic child. I was uh, a shy and awkward, bookish child, and uh, always constantly had my nose in a book. And books were my friend, and my relief from like, boredom and uh, pastime. And you know, I don't remember favorite authors that I had from then, but I'll tell you this: the books that are my favorite books now. Are the ones that I wish that I had read as a as a child, (laughs) and they're primarily like epic fantasies. Oh wow! For instance, the space trilogy from C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles Mm -hmm. of Narnia, and Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter, and uh, Wrinkle in Time, Mm
0: -hmm. books
2: like that that are my favorite now and that I try to get my nine-year-old to read. (laughs) Uh, And I think the reason I'm such a sucker for epic fantasy. And I think that the reason is because I think humanity's greatest gift or one of our greatest gifts, well, let me say two, two of our greatest gifts are our imagination and our curiosity. Mm-hmm. And to me, those two, those two very human, uh, assets are so exemplified in, in epic fantasy, ex- especially the epic fantasy that's written for a more childlike mind, for a more wondering mind. Mm-hmm. So that stuff captures my imagination. And I, I, you know, I think of, I think of the Christ as being the epitome of curiosity and imagination. And so.
0: I was going to say, would you qualify the Bible as epic fantasy, sort of? Like, it's in that
1: genre. <laughs> Hang on, Autumn. Now you're getting into some serious <laughs> theological conversations.
2: No, well, the Bible can be very swashbuckling.
1: Oh, I love <laughs> yeah. that. Save that. I love that.
0: <laughs> Not fantasy is in fiction, but fantasy is in, it's suspense. You have to use your imagination to read the Bible, mm-hmm. and it- record of the human imagination, trying to connect to the divine imagination.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I think that's all there in that.
1: Yeah, you know, I want to echo what you just said, because, you know, growing up reading uh, fictional uh, materials, uh, I was always just really uh, struck by how many biblical themes we see in a lot of fictional writing. And, of course, you mentioned Lewis and Tolkien uh, that are extremely uh, saturated with uh, biblical ideals, biblical themes, Uh, certainly this idea of good versus evil in the world and how justice can be played out. So uh, this is a great conversation. So good.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So you wrote, um, first of all, I have to ask you, who designed your book? I happen to live with
2: a world-class designer. <laughs> I sleep in the bed with him and <laughs> he lives in my house with me. My spouse, Jordan Gattapy is his name. He's a designer and, you know, he and I have known each other for 20 years, I guess. And he gets me and he was able to design that beautiful cover um, that, I i mean, he it was able to translate from the body of work into an image that, that made the cover. And, of course, he typeset it as well. So, yeah.
0: He it made- I mean, I could picture it in the highest of church, like in the back of the pew with alongside a hymnal. Mm hmm. Truly. Really? I mean, it was just, you could take it up and That's read it you know. <laughs> yeah, <you could>, Exactly. <laughs> the book of common prayer, if I'm really dreaming. <laughs> I love it. So the book is called Call and Response, Litanies for Congregational Prayer. Uh, what made you decide to write it, and can you tell us a little bit about the process?
2: Well, I started writing litanies in 2013.
0: Hmm. That's pretty new. That's a pretty recent occurrence.
2: Yep. Um, I wasn't even exposed to liturgy until about 2009, because I grew up in a very evangelical uh, context. Right here, girl. Right here. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know what liturgy was, and I didn't know what mystery it could hold, and what beauty, and how, and so I just had a very visceral experience, which is the intro to the book explains the experience of how I how I, I call it, how liturgy saved my life. Cause I really do believe that it saved my faith in so many ways and kept my ship from sinking. But, uh, I then was out. I was at the time when I discovered litany was, was for the first time in my life attending a liturgical church. And that was very, very new. Uh, so then a few years later, I'm back in a more evangelical setting, which I'm no longer in anymore, but at the time I was, and I was missing it. Gosh, I missed it. I I was I would come home and practice more of this contemplative liturgical personal faith here in my studio that I'm in now, and then you know go on stage at church and lead my five rock songs. You know, (laughs) (laughs) with my band. Yeah, sure. And I was longing for the liturgy again, and I couldn't find after endless Googling couldn't find litanies that would translate for my congregation.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That the language would be accessible and the themes would be relevant to us. And I just couldn't find it. And finally I was like, well, I guess I'm gonna have to write it. So <laughs> there you go. My practice of writing liturgies grew grew out of there being a vacuum that I couldn't find what I needed for my people in my context. And then it's it evolved over the years into the art form that it is now. And the, you know, for me it's both meditation and spiritual practice and personal expression and a way that I connect to um, issues that are happening and the world. So now it's more than that, but that's how it began. And Eventually, would just I, after starting my website in 2015, got a lot of requests for "We need a book, we need a book," and so it took me a few years to to get it going. But I did eventually. Yeah, I had small children, so it took me a bit. <laughs>
1: <I> feel that, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, friend, you mentioned you didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, but more an evangelical tradition. Uh, what is one of the the uh, really I don't know if it's a recent trend or not, but it seems to be fairly recent. Is the emergence of liturgical worship uh being very appealing's not the right word, but maybe um I don't know, help me out. Do what?
2: I call it resonant. Yeah, yeah,
1: resonant. It resonates with the younger generation, which you know goes against kind of modern day thinking. But there seems to be this connection with a younger generation that liturg- uh, liturgy is resonating with them and is meaningful for them and is essential to their spiritual formation. Uh, do you see that? As you know, you talk to churches, worship leaders around the country, and if so, wh- why is that happening?
2: Well, I do see it. And, I, you know, the place I live is at the intersection of liturgical and modern mm-hmm. uh, styles. And I'm moving away from using the word worship mm-hmm. to refer to services. I can explain, but um, that's where I live. Sure. In in, at that intersection and I'm my a major message that I try to get across whenever I'm speaking to groups is that those two are not exclusive we can draw from bro- from both streams and I think you know i I'm technically a millennial I'm just a very elder millennial mm-hmm. and you know we're I think my generation and I don't know that I can speak for all the generations but i can speak for elder millennials we are we are bucking against what is performative mm-hmm. and looking for the thing that is um more internal and intuitive and authentic and for me that means we bring in a, a A slew, a buffet of art forms, to reflect our spiritual practice. That isn't just you know what I used to do with the three fast songs and two slow songs and the guitars and the drums and stuff. Sure, yeah.
1: So, do you think? (laughs) No, 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 that that was a great answer. Um, So, do you think, especially the artistic uh, component of it? And there is, and I don't mean that in a very trivial sense, but a very meaningful uh, and. Um, inspirational sense uh, because you enter into l- uh, liturgy uh, you are part of the liturgy and the liturgy is part of you it's very relational uh, when you're uh, citing a text or when you're praying a text or whether you're you know uh, lighting incense or a candle or whatever the exercise might be um, do you do you think there's this genuineness to it this, uh, this beauty about it that is connecting to people because, you know, the world we live in, obviously we're trying to find beauty and meaning and purpose every chance we can get. And in the liturgies, it opens a door for us to discover those things.
2: I think it does open the door to us and I don't think that it resonates with everyone. I think there are different kind of personalities that are in the, in your, congregation and some people resonate more uh, with music and some people resonate more with word and some people resonate more with ritual as in physically embodied doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we are longing for beauty and, you know, something that uh, Matthew and Aurelia and I, Matthew and Aurelia are my co-pastors at Peace of Christ Church. We sort of a touchstone that we return to over and over again is we refer to what we're making in any given gathering, whether it's a gathering in which we're physically together Mm -hmm. or a gathering that's virtual that we stream on Facebook live or whatever. We refer to it as making sacred art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I believe that beauty is, um, nourishes the human soul and, we need it to survive and I uh, some years ago I read a book called Beauty Will Save the World by Brian Zahn, mm-hmm. Zond and uh that book really helped me to articulate this, what I am seeking and trying to build, which is a faith and a religion that is winsome and beautiful and inclusive and welcoming. And the other component to that is the language that we use because the, you know, in a lot of ways, our language, um, determines how we think, how we speak about things determines how we, how we think, about things. And so we need our language to be as beautiful and robust as ever it can be so that we can make meaning so that we can, you know, find the essence of the divine and the chaos that we're all living through. So those are touchstones for me in terms of creating, uh, creating services that, What we hope we'll do is, um, and this is another idea that we touch a lot on and that I do, and especially as a person who plays music and leads worship, and that is creating space. You know, any given gathering is... uh, I'm doing the best that I can to help facilitate and create a space in which people can connect to the divine, which is not my work. My people connecting to the divine is not up to me, mm-hmm. but creating a, a space that is sacred and holy and beautiful and welcoming that I can participate in. I love so, that.
1: That's great.
2: That's I a love lot that. of thoughts. You know, speaking
1: yeah. about chaos, and, and you mentioned that just a moment ago, um, people are at home. Uh, churches uh, are still not gathering at least those that have a sense about them uh, but they're gathering online uh, and stuff like that um, for our listeners who find themselves at home and and who you know who are thinking about liturgy or maybe they attend a church that um, has flirted it's probably a bad term but flirted with liturgy um, and want to begin to instill liturgical practices into their own life. And right now during this chaos, certainly would recommend uh, these practices. What are some uh, practical exercises that you can give our folks?
2: Well, a couple that come to mind are, I'm fond of saying and posting on my Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fond of saying that, gratitude is spirituality 101 Mm
0: -hmm.
2: basic basic spirituality across traditions across wisdom traditions is gratitude and i believe that it is so important for us to do that if we want to become uh if we're christ followers and we want to become mature in that one of the most important things we can do is learn to practice gratitude and the reason that we can that that's for me, so fundamental, is that um, it helps us learn to pay attention. Which is, I think, what the essence of worship is, Mm -hmm. learning to pay attention. And I also think it's the essence of what prayer is. It's just learning to pay attention. Because if we're not paying attention, then we're never going to see the divine that's all around us. And we're never going to see the evidence of the divine that, literally, if you learn to look and you get, like, your spiritual antennae, Developed, you will begin to see. You'll begin to be able to behold in any given moment or situation. And I think gratitude is a foundational practice for learning to do that. Learning to say, "Okay, that things are crazy here. What can I at least dial down in this moment?" And and either write or speak mm-hmm. gratitude for. It helps us connect both to the present moment. And to pay attention to the divine in the present moment. So that's my number one. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, after that, I would say if you want to become a liturgical person, start reading poetry every day.
1: Ah, nice.
2: Any poetry, um, any decent poetry, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I think poetry does the same, does a similar thing for us. You know, the poets of the world who are often the prophets of the world, they have an ability to pay attention to the world in a way that people who aren't clued into poetic poetry and poetic forms don't necessarily have that muscle built. And I believe that learning to see the world as a poet sees the world really helps us become, you know, liturgy is the work of the people. Mm -hmm. If the work of the people is, you know, walking humbly and, uh, doing justice and loving mercy, then we have to be able to learn to pay attention to the world around us. And I think that's that poetry and gratitude both teach us to do that. So I love it. My
0: favorite too.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of poetry, I think autumn, uh, has a request, uh, for you.
0: Well, yeah. So as I was reading through some of your liturgies, it did feel like poetry to me. It felt like you could be in front of a coffee shop and people might be snapping along. Um, and I love Christmas more than most things on this planet, and so of course had to go through some of your Advent readings that you have available. Um, and I came across one that I sent to you, so will you take us through just a little, so we can all get a little bit of a glimpse of your 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 uh, your writing?
2: Sure. And just before I begin, um, I often write alongside the lectionary reading. For the week for for the Sunday. And so this litany is for Christmas Eve, year A in the lectionary cycle. Um, and I would have written this alongside whatever scriptures were presented in, on year A for Christmas Eve. Uh, so this is litany for Silent Night. This is a snippet of it at least. The most monumental works, are done in the smallest increments. The most glorious hymns are sung by the croakiest voices. The most brilliant cathedrals are built by the roughest hands. The most fervent prayers are prayed by the gentlest souls. Even as the tiniest baby, the Christ, was telling the glory of God. The highest heights are made low for you. You level the roughest terrain.
1: Wow, that was beautiful. Lovely. So lovely. Yes, thank yeah. you so much for that gift.
0: Absolutely. So at Good Faith Media, our tagline is there's more to tell. Um, so can you tell us in this time of uh, you know, pandemic and a new normal, what is your more to tell?
2: I always want people to remember that uh, anything that I do, any any liturgy I create, can't take the place of your own personal spiritual practice because you can't outsource your spiritual work. Mm-hmm. I can't do it for you, and it's we each of us, you know, it's this very this very Baptist idea of personal responsibility and i think that that is true yes the divine carries us along but we do have personal responsibility for our spiritual work so you know i always want to say yeah read and pray the prayers that i write but they'll never take you all the way where you need to go hopefully they'll help you but um your spiritual work is your own and alongside of that you know what i what i these litanies are prayers at their at their most fundamental level they're prayers they're they're just that and prayer is a really simple thing and i i conceptualize prayer more as was, i've been saying as as attention than anything i think it's about attention and beingness and awareness mm-hmm. and i think that so much of prayer is beyond language The medium that I work in is language. Yes, it's words. And I think that I think our language is so important and I can back that up and I can give you data about how important language is and how important it is to speak of the divine in robust terms and to not limit the divine according to, you know, whatever our boxes are that we have, like gender or what have you. But Prayer is beyond language, and the divinest beyond language, and I can't do your spiritual work with you with words alone.
1: <laughs> I love yeah. that. Well, Reverend Fran Pratt, thank you so much for being with us on Good Faith Weekly. We have enjoyed this conversation immensely.
0: Thank you. I have also enjoyed it. So now that we've all wet our whistle with your liturgy, how can we access it?
2: Well, most of my we- my weekly writing that I do, which I, I write every week, at least one, if not more, litanies, and those are available to my patrons on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Fran Pratt, and there's an archive of litanies also available on my website, which is franpratt.com, um, although in 2019, I started... I realized that I had to make the work sustainable for myself and my family. And so the majority, I'm shunted more of the the majority of my writing to Patreon.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And then the book, the book is available. It's available at Sacred Ordinary Days, and it's also just available on Amazon. Okay. Okay.
1: And the name of the book is Call and Response, Litanies for Congregational Prayer. So make certain you log on to Amazon or other sites and uh, pick it up. It's going to be a great read. Thanks, guys. Fran, thank you so much for joining us and appreciate everybody tuning in this week. Uh, tune in next week as uh, we're going to come back and talk about where culture and faith intersect.